Church, I have to tell you that of all the various modes and nuances of comedy in film or television or live theater, I've always, always had a soft spot for improvisational comedy called improv. Maybe you're a closet fan of Colin, Ryan, or Wayne from Whose Line Is It Anyways? And you can't believe that these guys can be so funny without knowing anything in advance. Or maybe you know of improv troops around the nation like Second City or the Groundlings or the Upright Citizens Brigade. Or maybe you know of the actors who came out of some of those groups like Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, Will Ferrell, Steve Carell, Stephen Colbert, and the list goes on. Back when Katie and I were dating in the early aughts, I remember driving from my college town to Katie's college town to go out to dinner and then to see Hope College's only improv group, Vanderprov, perform in a local theater. It was my first time seeing improvisational comedy done live, and I was amazed. How can people do that? How can they stand up there with no scripts, no lines, and come up with scenes and dialogue that was absolutely hilarious? I assumed that improv comedy was only for absolute professionals with years of experience, and you just have to be instinctually funny to pull it off. I mean, the way that the actors seemed so comfortable and at ease on stage blew my mind. The show felt like a live wire, an unpredictable, chaotic, no rules, no holds barred experience taking place right in front of me. How can anybody do that and still make it really funny to me? A decade later, I would learn that improv comedy is actually built on a framework of rules and that you can't really be funny at improv unless you know the rules and follow them. Improv is not just chaos that happens to be funny. It's actually full of order and pattern behavior, and that's what makes it work. Here's one quote by a famous actor on improvisation. She writes, the first rule of improvisation is agree. Always agree and say yes. When you're improvising, this means you are required to agree with whatever your partner has created. So says comedian and actress Tina Fey in her hilarious autobiography, Bossy Pants. Now, say, Paul, could I borrow you for a minute? Okay, Paul, could you come stand right here? I didn't tell Paul we were doing this, by the way. Somehow this is cathartic. Okay. Paul, if you and I were going to improv a scene, okay, and uh, I, I want you to hold up your arm like you're holding a bunch of helium balloons, okay? Okay, face this way. Okay. Okay, now, if, if I were to say, if I, the first rule of improv, right, tells me that, that I have to agree with Paul. So, say, Paul was to tell me, Paul was to say, uh, here's your line, your, your first line is, boy, I hope I can sell these balloons today, okay? Boy, I hope I can sell these balloons today. Okay, so now, stop. Now, I've got, a, I've got a task in front of me. I have to come up with a response to Paul. He just is holding his arm up, and he said, boy, I hope I can sell these balloons today. If, if I reject this, if I say, you're not holding balloons, you're holding your arm up. Put your arm down. You can't see the balloons? No, can't, I can't. <laughs> Were I to say that, 
the scene could be at risk of stopping altogether. Yeah. Right? So, so the first rule of improv commands that I agree with Paul. I have to agree with this scene he's created. He's holding balloons. He wants to sell. Now, uh, I have to agree that he is holding a bunch of balloons. I can pretend to be amazed at how many balloons there are. I could even try to count how many balloons there are. I could ask, how did you get so many? He could offer me a balloon. Uh, but if I want the scene to continue, I have to accept what he's creating. That's the first rule. But the second rule of improv is even more important. Here's comedy expert Tina Fey once again. The second rule of improv is not only to say yes, but yes and. I have to agree and then add something of my own. So this really is the heart and soul of improv comedy. Not only do I have to accept the scene that Paul's created with these balloons, now I have to add to it. So Paul, say your line again. Boy, I hope I can sell these balloons. I could say, Paul, why are you trying to sell balloons at this graveside funeral service? Well, it could bring some life to people. Wouldn't you be selling balloons? Right. See, so, so now we've moved the scene on. Now not only is Paul, Paul didn't expect me to do that, but now he has to figure out what is he going to do to my yes, to my statement. Now he's at a graveside selling funerals. He's like, he can't say, I'm not at a graveside. That's not where I am. Right? He has to continue on and say, I've got the corner of the market on funeral yeah. balloons or yeah. something, you know, uh, and so on and so forth. Okay, thank, will you thank my actor friend Paul here? You want these? Oh, thank you, man. I appreciate that. Okay. It's not just saying yes, but it's saying yes and. It's developing the scene further. It's not just to agree, but it's to agree and then add something new. These are the two most crucial rules that all improv comedy and jazz and other forms of improv follow. If it's going to be good, if it's going to be quality improv, you've got to say yes and. Today I'm deviating from my usual pattern of preaching from the gospel text that we read from John 14, and instead I'm preaching from our first reading, a reading taken from a book with a really, really long title, The Acts of the Apostles, which we just shortened and call it Acts. This history-slash-theology book follows the four gospels in the New Testament, and it serves as a sort of bridge between the stories about Jesus in the Gospels and the letters of the early church leaders to congregations across the Roman Empire that make up the bulk of the New Testament. In this book of the Acts of the Apostles, or Acts, in 28 chapters, we are told of the major events that took place after Jesus' ascension so that within about two decades, the Christian church becomes a rather well-established religious group all across the Roman Empire. We get to see the apostles Peter and John in action. We meet a new guy, Saul, whose name is now Paul, and his traveling companions, Barnabas, Timothy, Silas, and more. For the first half of the book, we're hanging with Jesus' OG disciples in Jerusalem. And for the second half, we end up following Paul across the Mediterranean as he launches Christian church after Christian church in all sorts of places and locales. Today's reading from Acts chapter 17 comes towards the end of what we conventionally call Paul's second missionary journey. This is his second to last stop before he's going to spend two years hanging out in a city called Corinth, making tents and getting to know and care for the people in the church there. But today, Paul is making a stop. 
it almost feels like a sightseeing stop in the world-famous city of Athens. And in the lead-up to today's reading, what we didn't read in our text today, but you can certainly read if you open your Bibles and go back to verses, uh, 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 starting in verse 16, uh, Paul finds himself wandering around the city of Athens. He is a Jewish Christian. He is irritated, the text says. The text says he's deeply distressed, in fact, to see that the city of Athens is filled up full with countless temples and shrines and statues and altars set up on behalf of one of the many Greek gods or goddesses or demigods or heroes from the old myths. They are everywhere. The description of Athens in Acts 17 matches really nicely with some other contemporary travel reports about the city that we have, a city that was filled with divine imagery and symbols. From the, from the gates of the city down to the harbor and all the way through the streets, the city was a billboard for every religious figure conceivable in Greek culture. So Paul does what he usually does on these missionary stops. He, he hangs out with the Jewish folks, speaking to them at their Sabbath gatherings for worship, telling them about how their story in the Hebrew scripture has been now brought to fruition in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, whom God raised from the dead. But Paul does something else here in Athens, something new. He doesn't just limit himself to the synagogues. He also visits the agora, the marketplace. And he starts, I mean, dare we say it, he starts kind of picking fights with some members of a couple established philosophical schools. Specifically, we learn that Paul begins to argue with some Epicureans, uh, philosophers who really, really, really didn't like any sort of religious piety and who really, really enjoyed mocking anyone who did. He also argues with some Stoics, people who loved religious piety and who practiced their philosophy with the zeal and rigor of a religion. And all of this, these arguments are being done out in the open air of the marketplace. This was somewhat unusual because most of the heavy-duty philosophizing was done in places, dedicated spaces, called gymnasiums, not necessarily in the marketplace. There was one group, though, there was one group, the cynics, and the cynics used to accost people in the marketplace. You could think of them like street corner preachers who just called out people walking by trying to buy fruit at the market stall. And the cynics, I mean, no one liked the cynics. They didn't, no one cared for this rhetorical approach. It was abrasive and abrupt and offensive. For Paul, what's clear is that neither the Epicureans nor the Stoics really like how Paul is riling up people. They call him a babbler. They call him a proclaimer of foreign divinities, which, incidentally, is the exact same thing they accused Socrates of before he was made to drink the hemlock. Anyway, in short order, Paul is going to be escorted up to a place called the Areopagus, or Ares Hill, or in the Roman parlance, Mars Hill. And there he's going to answer questions of some well-to-do folks who had ample free time since they had slaves to do all the hard labor, and who enjoyed passing the time discussing human existence and civic society and duty 
and what constitutes a good life and so forth. Philosophers, we would call them. And as philosophers, they are curious to find out more about this Jewish preacher accosting people in the Agora and telling them about a man 1,700 miles away who was raised from the dead about, about 10 years earlier. This is what's going on if you want to understand today's reading. Today we skip the setup and we get straight to Paul's monologue to these philosophy majors. There is a lot that we could say about this TED Talk of St. Paul's on Mars Hill. Christianity is filled with countless painters and artists who have fixated on this scene of St. Paul hanging with the philosophers of Athens. In our day, we've seen even churches and Christian movements naming themselves after this scene, naming church congregations, Mars Hill, for example. There is something riveting and fascinating about how the Apostle Paul addressed these philosophers. And while we could spend sermon after sermon talking about any number of things that Paul said here, from the clever introduction of a singular God to a polytheistic people, to the fact that this cosmic God requires no shrines or altars or houses, to the universal human quest to seek out the divine, to, to the way Paul effortlessly brought in the, the famous Greek poets to advance his point, to the pivotal decision of God to judge the earth through one human Jesus, whom God even raised from the dead. There's much that we could talk about in this short passage. But church, today I want to talk to you about St. Paul, the improvisational comedy expert. St. Paul who remembered his improv lessons and who remembered the first two lessons of improv, say yes and agree, then add something new. If you have your Bibles open, look at chapter 17 of uh, the book of Acts, verses 22 and 23. I'll read it. Here's what it says. It says, Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Do you see the, the yes and? Look, look, we know that for a Jewish person, the presence of so many idols and statues of divine things coupled with the polytheism of Greek culture would have presented with a, a person with a significant problem. Furthermore, we know that in chapter 17, verse 16, Paul was distressed. The text literally says he was irritated in his spirit. That's a word my dad used to say, irked. He was, he was distressed at how many statues and altars and shrines there were in the city. But, but I want you to see that there's a difference between being irked internally and what you choose to say when given an opportunity later. Look at what Paul says. And, and when he has a chance to speak at length to the city leaders, does he denounce the city and its idols and shrines and statues? Does he promise hellfire and brimstone if they don't smash everyone? Does he assault 
the foundations of Greek culture and demand that they all become Jews? No. Instead, the first thing he does is he flatters them. He praises them. People of Athens, I see how religious you are. You've got so many objects of your worship, and I took some time to understand them and examine them closely. Paul says an improvisational yes to their religious culture. Yes, I see you are deeply religious. Not, uh, I can't believe you're a bunch of hippie pagans without half a sense. Not, uh, this new thing you've devised is the vilest cesspool that the devil has on earth. That was Martin Luther actually talking Uh, what I'd say the most anti-improv guy around, uh, talking to one of his detractors. Now, Paul does not mock them. He does not attack them. He does not try to end this scene by telling them they're all wrong. He agrees with their religious sensibility. He says yes, but it doesn't stop there. Look at verse 23, if you've got it open. I went through the city. I looked carefully at the objects of your worship, and I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. This God, whom you unknowingly worship, I proclaim to you. This is a brilliant yes and. It's an agreeing and adding something new. Paul praises their religious sense of things and finds that they've even built an altar to a yet unknown deity, a a deity without a Greek name or Greek mythology, a deity that was not part of the Greek stories, but perhaps someone thought was yet worthy of human worship. Paul uses this as a back door through which he's able to proclaim the essential convictions about God held by Jews and Christians and to announce the idea that this singular cosmic deity, unknown to the Greeks as of yet, had actually appointed a human being to become the righteous judge of the whole earth, and he raised him from the dead to prove his case. Paul's use of these two improv rules allows him to speak respectfully and in culturally appropriate ways that earn him a hearing. He says, yes, I see you're religious, and I'm going to tell you a bit more about this God whom you Uh, you've accidentally worshipped. Paul lays out the groundwork here for every proper interreligious conversation, for every clash of cultures in which people may otherwise be quick to dismiss or judge. Paul says, I'm so impressed with your piety. You you even worship unknown gods. Um, Let me tell you about one of those. And guess what? It turns out that God is actually the one who made all things. I want you to notice in this response, though, that that Paul's faith, his convictions, are not diminished by doing it this way. He does not water down his beliefs about God or about Jesus, but he wraps those convictions up in a bit of clever improv here, and as a result, his convictions are received by these philosophers. Now, some are going to block him, end the scene, say, no, we can't accept resurrection, we're done, but others Others, Acts 17.34 says, joined Paul and became believers. Yes, and. It's not just, yes, I see you're religious and that's great, full stop. But it's, yes, I see you're religious and I'm going to tell you about a deity you don't know about. Yes, and is more than just clever theater rules for comedy. It can be a significant part of our rule for our life. 
learning how to accept what someone gives us and then to build upon it to do something new is a powerful way to create honest dialogue with those you disagree with the most. Saying yes and is for many people a life rule, a guideline for every aspect of their life from parenting to school to relationships to leadership to business to money to religion to everything in between. I mean, take a few moments if you're interested and Google the power of yes and and you'll see what I'm talking about. It's everywhere in virtually every industry. But one of the reasons, and I would argue the only reason, that yes and works in improv is because the comedians doing it have privately rehearsed to themselves joke after joke and situation after situation so they know why things are funny and they know how it feels in their own voice to say it out loud. It's not that dissimilar to jazz improv where jazz artists will spend countless hours rehearsing, committing to memory passages from famous jazz standards, playing melodies in a number of modes and scales over and over and over until they are so infused in their bodies and minds that their fingers and their brains know what notes to play instinctively and only then are they able to do something new. For jazz musicians, this process is called wood shopping. Just like a person chopping wood has to do it over and over and over in order to fill their wood bin with enough logs for fires in the winter, so too a jazz musician has to practice and practice and practice long before they get up on stage and play excellent live jazz improv with a group. They can only say yes and when they have learned how to recognize what was being done and how they can add to it. For us Christians, I think a similar wood shopping is in order. Like jazz musicians or improv comics, I think that we are required to spend much of our days doing the daily labor of learning and knowing and meditating and thinking about the scriptures to make them such a part of our inner being that when we look at the world we're, and we can say not just yes to what comes but yes and to agree and then do something new to have at our fingertips fingertips the stories of God in scripture with such familiarity that we are able to vamp on it when necessary, just like St. Paul did to the Athenians when he began to describe the work of God in history on the basis of the Athenians' worship of an unknown God. Paul was so comfortable with the story of God, he was able to weave it into his conversation with ease and skill and not with bombastic yelling and threats and judgment. Are we as comfortable with the stories of God in Scripture? Do we know the stories of Jesus in the Gospels well enough to repeat them and rehearse them, to vamp on them when given an opportunity? I think the image of St. Paul in Mars Hill gives us an example to strive for as we seek to be a people who greet this world with not just a yes, but with a very important and. To do this, enables us to be a people who share the good news about Jesus in places and with people we least expect. Church, I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let the church of Jesus Christ say, Amen. Thanks for listening this week. 
The First Presbyterian Church of Flint is an historic downtown congregation proudly part of the Presbyterian Church USA, the largest Presbyterian denomination in the United States. You can learn more about us at fpcf.org. You can check out our weekly live stream broadcasts on our channel on YouTube. But better yet, you can stop by any Sunday at 10.30 a.m. to worship with us. We would love to welcome you and your family to worship. Have a great week.